We have a kids class available at this time. And so kids, if you would like to make your way to that, it just meets in the back room here. If you're unaware of that, parents, uh, that happens every Sunday and you're more than welcome to have your kids go to that class. We also have a fully staffed nursery every Sunday that meets in the room off the corner over here and want to let you know that that's available and uh, fully staffed each Sunday uh, if you would like to make use of that. I want to invite you this morning to turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Uh, We are going to finish up this book together this morning, 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Uh, I want to start by asking you a question. Is there anything that you wish was different about your church? And I ask that question recognizing that you could very much love your church and still uh, have things that you wish were different. Particularly, I want to ask, is there anything that you wish was different about your church related to the people of it? Not not so much asking about the programs or the things offered, but, but the people themselves. You can probably think of some things, and truthfully, there may be some things that need to be different, that God wants to be different. God may want certain dynamics to change, and he may want other dynamics to grow and develop and flourish and bring forth fruit. What is it that you wish your church and its people were like? You know, maybe if you could just change a thing or two. What's on your wish list? Or maybe I could phrase it this way. What's missing that bothers, frustrates, or discourages you? If you're honest, there's probably something you could think of. If I'm honest, there are probably some things I would change. I'm guessing you can think of a thing or two, and that's because every church has problems and deficiencies. The Corinthian church certainly did. In fact, nearly every chapter of 1 Corinthians exposes a different problem in the church of Corinth. This church has issues. If I'm a member of the church of Corinth, I actually might be extremely discouraged about my church, especially if I'm, I'm trying. I may not be perfect, but I'm trying to do what's right. And I look around my church and go, man, there's just all these problems. And this person's like this. And this is really lacking. I might even want to look for a new one where the people are maybe just a little bit better, even just a little bit. As Paul wraps up this book, uh, what he's actually going to do is commend and praise certain things and behaviors and people to the Corinthians. And he's showing them uh, pictures that he's taken of what a healthy church looks like. And, And some of the pictures that he shows the Corinthians are actually, some of them are even of them. And these pictures give them something to strive for, and they communicate that a happy, healthy church starts with you. A happy, healthy church starts with you. Look with me at 1 Corinthians 16, and I want to begin in verse 12 and read through the end of this chapter. Paul writes here, Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers. But it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus uh, were the first converts in Achaia and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these. And to every fellow worker and laborer, I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus, because they have made up for your absence. For they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such men. 
the churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prisca, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with all of you. In Christ Jesus, amen. We might say that Paul has his camera strapped around his neck, maybe before the days of cell phones. And he's got his camera strapped around his neck, and he's been snapping pictures of this and that, and he, he's, now he's displaying them. Which ones is he going to show us? Which, which pictures is he going to say, take a look at this one and be inspired by it. Take note of this, because this is what uh, God wants to see in his church. And so he's going to give us six positive portraits uh, from this text that we want to look at together this morning. Here's the first one. Portrait number one is people leading without rivalry. Look back at verse 12. Now concerning our brother, Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. Uh, This verse references two leaders. The obvious one is Apollos. Paul is the one writing. Uh, And and we want to talk about these two guys for a minute. I want you to keep your finger here and, and turn back with me, though, to the book of Acts, chapter 18, for a moment. And as you're turning there... Uh, just want to back up and get some context of what was going on earlier in the book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, one of the reasons that Paul wrote this letter, 1 Corinthians, was to defend his apostleship. In fact, he opens up 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1, and he's immediately, almost we might say, uh, asserting his apostleship or defending it. He starts this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1. He, he says, Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle, God made me an apostle. He's sort of on the, fence, the, the defensive. And to make matters worse, the Corinthian church was experiencing great division in relation to their leaders. You may recall from way back in chapter 1, verse 12, that Paul said to the Corinthians, each one of you says something like this, I follow Paul. I follow, guess who? Apollos. I follow Cephas. I, po- I follow Peter. I follow Christ. And so that's some of the dynamic there. I mean, people are clamoring around these different leaders. Paul's already on the defensive. And and let's just note what Apollos is like. Acts chapter 18, we're given a little bit of, of what he's like in verses 24 to 28. I just want to read these verses. And I think what you'll find is that Apollos, he's a pretty awesome guy. Acts 18, beginning in verse 24. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, The brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Uh, Just looking at those verses alone, what do we know about Apollos? Well, we know that he was incredibly gifted. 
He was also humble. I mean, you have some people in uh, 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 other believers, Aquila and Priscilla, everyday Christians, and they come to him and say, hey, Apollos, there's something you don't understand here about, about the truth. And he listens to them. He's incredibly gifted. He's humble. He's teachable. When he spoke, he did so with eloquence, and he's competent, and he does so with accuracy and passion and fervency. Why wouldn't you like Apollos? And the Corinthians love him, at least some of them do, and they want him to come. And and meanwhile, Paul's kind of up in a corner defending himself a bit. Back in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 12, Paul begins with this phrase, now concerning our brother Apollos. Uh, you may remember starting back in 7.1, Paul began addressing several matters that the Corinthians had actually written him about. And with each one of those matters that he takes up, he starts with the phrase, now concerning. And that's what he does here. Now concerning our brother Apollos, what's going on is most likely the Corinthians had written Paul about Apollos, and it seems that they're asking, hey, Paul, could you send Apollos back here? We would love to have him. And meanwhile, as so many of these Corinthians are idolizing Apollos, Paul is under the gun by many of them. And notice how he opens up here in verse 12. He writes, now concerning our brother, Apollos. Who? Our brother. For Paul, there are no rivals, only brothers. And what Paul's doing, he's promoting unity in a place that's very divided. In fact, he, he encourages in this verse Apollos to go. I mean, he's, he explains in this verse that I've been trying to get Apollos to come and minister to you. I think he would be a great spiritual blessing to you right now. I've urged him in that direction. But Apollos says, no, not right now. It's not a good time. And it may even be in that, that he might even be saying something along the lines of, I think I should stay away for a while. We're, we're not certain about that, but Apollos, he goes, no, I've got somewhere else I need to be right now. And perhaps he said that because he didn't want to play into the hands of the Corinthians' man worship and complicate things more for Paul. I don't know, but what is certain is that both of these guys are on the same team. The reality is is that leadership is a dangerous place to be in because it can lead to a false sense of self-importance and pride, especially when people start clamoring for you as what was going on in the Corinthians with different leaders. I'm of Paul. I'm of, of Apollos. I'm of Peter. And yet both of these men understand that this is not about us. This is just not about us at all. It's about the glory of God and the good of his people. And so both of these men are playing on the same team. Not for the name that's on the back of their jersey. They stand together, not apart. And if you want to make yourself look good, if you're either one of these men and you've already got some people clamoring for you, hey, why not lob a grenade over there at that guy? Why why not try to divide these, these people further? There's a powerful... African proverb that says, when the elephants fight, the grass gets trampled. And the idea is that when powerful forces go to war, it's it's their people who get hurt. When there's rivalry among church leaders, it's the people of the church who pay the price. If Paul and Apollos will allow themselves to be rivals and somehow pitted against each other, who's going to lose? The people. 
It's the Corinthians that are going to lose. Their, their, their focus is continue, going to continue to be turned away from the gospel. Their church is going to be fractured further and further. This church is not going to be a healthy place. God wants your church to be a place where people lead without rivalry, and that starts with you. And anywhere that you may be leading, all the way from our eldership, just to even leading and serving in various ministries, there's no room for rivalry. There's no room for, I do it better than this person, and I'm superior to that person, and I'm going to get my little team over here, and we're going to be, no, 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 (laughs) that doesn't work. There's no room for rivalry and in any situation where you might even be being led. You cannot have a party spirit that, that, that fractures and divides the church. You cannot make your allegiance to any man. For all of us, our allegiance is first and foremost to Jesus Christ. And Paul and Apollos are leading in such a way that that's where the, the Corinthians are all pointed. This is about Jesus, guys. Not us. A second positive portrait. Portrait number two is people exercising fortitude and love. Uh, verses 13 to 14, though we might not immediately catch this when we read these verses, they're spoken to a church apparently in the absence of a lead pastor. Apollos isn't coming. Paul says that he plans to come, but it's not going to be until winter. Uh, Timothy's on his way. And how should God's people conduct themselves during this time of transition or just at any time of life in the church? What do God's people maybe need to be reminded of? And so Paul's going to snap a picture for him and say, well, let me give you a picture of what it should look like. God calls you to fortitude. Look at verse 13. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. God gives four commands. The first one is to be watchful. He's recognizing and helping the Corinthians just think for a moment that there are always threats and dangers facing the church, especially in times of transition. And he's telling them you need to be spiritually awake and alert. And we would all need that. We just can kind of fall into an apathy where we don't even realize that every single day we're in a spiritual war. He also tells them to stand firm in the faith or hold your ground on the gospel and all of its implications. And don't move an inch. Don't deviate from it. You move an inch on the gospel, you get far down the road, you're going to be so far away from it. And then he tells them, act like men. I I don't think that that's like uh, your male verse to grow beards and uh, lift weights. He's speaking it to the church. Act like men. The Corinthians had shown a lot of immaturities and they needed to demonstrate spiritual maturity. They needed to courageously live for Christ. Even if they took heat from other people in their own body. Be strong. Draw your strength for each day from the Lord. God calls you to fortitude. It's this picture of strength and durability. But the characteristics of fortitude must always be matched and balanced by love. God calls you to fortitude and he also calls you to love. Verse 14, let all that you do be done in love. All that you do. And Paul's writing this right after 1 Corinthians 13 where he gave a whole chapter to what love is and what it looks like and how it behaves. Uh, You can probably envision in your mind a set of ancient scales maybe in the marketplace where somebody's selling something and, you know, they've got scales and two little bowls on either side of it. And for something to be balanced, you need the same amount on both sides of the scales. 
And Paul is painting a, a beautiful picture here of, of what healthy Christians in a healthy church looks like. Most of us, maybe our scales tend to kind of be like this. You know, we've got maybe a lot of love and not very much fortitude, or maybe a lot of fortitude and not very much love. And in the Christian life, as we reflect the character of Jesus Christ, uh, the characteristics need to hang in, hang in balance. And we should be strong and we should be loving simultaneously. God wants your church to be a place where people exercise fortitude and love, and that starts with you. And a third positive portrait, portrait number three, is people arranging their lives to serve. Arranging their lives to serve. Look back at verses 15 and 16. Now I urge you, brothers... You know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these and to every fellow worker and laborer. What has Paul done? Remember, he's got his camera and he just snapped a picture of Stephanus and his household. And now he's taking that picture and it's like he's framing it and putting it on display. Look at this. Be inspired by this. Like, this is a great example for everyone. A phrase in verse 15 summarized the picture well. Uh, It's the phrase that says that they devoted themselves to the service of the saints. That's a beautiful picture. And it's really a beautiful picture of prioritized service. Uh, I think our English translations could give us a black and white picture of what's going on. Sometimes it's hard to take a word from one language, translate it into another in a way that really captures what's going on. And what I want to do is just try to bring this phrase into color for you a bit this morning. The word that's translated devoted when it says that they devoted themselves to the service of the saints, that word devoted means to arrange a point or order. Arrange a point or order. Stephanus and his household arranged themselves and their lives to the service of the saints. Just get that in your mind for a moment. They arranged themselves. They, they ordered and structured their lives in such a way that they did that for the service of the saints. Maybe a question for all of us would be this. What is my life arranged around four or two? Your life is arranged around four and two something. It's ordered in a certain direction so that you can do certain things. All of our lives are. Is my life arranged around my hobbies, my interests, my pleasures, or a bunch of things that don't matter much? Uh, Obviously, there are certain things, just practical things, you have to arrange your life around to some degree. But this wonderful picture that we're given of Stephanus and his household is they arranged and ordered their lives around the service of the saints. Is your life arranged around serving God's people? If it is, that is a a beautiful picture. It's also a beautiful picture, not just of uh, prioritized service, but it's also a beautiful picture of self-appointed service. Uh, I think what's very clear is that no one appointed Stephanus and his household to whatever they were doing, which probably gives us a pretty clear indication that the way that they're serving may not even be in any kind of official capacity. But no one asked them to do this. Remember, this word devoted means to arrange, appoint, or order. They, they appointed themselves to the service of the saints. They appointed or self-appointed themselves to serve God's people. 
Uh, question, another question for us. Am I initiating ministry and looking for it? Or am I just waiting for someone to tap me on the shoulder? And I think as we look at God's word, one of the faults we fall into, I think probably in North America, here in the day and age in which we live, we think about ministry and we think about today and the two or three hours that we're here. It's so much bigger than that. These people self-appointed themselves to serving their church and God's people. They weren't waiting for someone to tap them on the shoulder. They were just, how can I serve these people? And I'm going to do it. It's also a beautiful picture, I, I think, here of long-term service. Uh, in verse 15, the reference to them being some of the first converts in the area is probably an indicator that they had been doing this for a long time. And it, what's also highlighted is that this is a household family affair. Uh, beyond probably flesh and blood, maybe, maybe they even had servants in their household. And we might say that what's going on in this picture is really a a long obedience in the same direction in a very not flashy way. Another question, am I a long-term servant or a fair-weather one? Just think about Stephanus. Some of what makes this picture so beautiful is you just think about the implications of what's going on here. Do you think that Stephanus... And his house ever grew tired, weary, or discouraged? Or do you think, you know, given the fact that they were a part of the church of Corinth, do you think they ever felt like the people that they were serving weren't really worthy of it? I, I just, I don't know how they, how, how can you be a Christian and, and, and arrange your life to serve like that and never have some of those feelings? I think we have some people here at Beaumont Baptist Church that uh, we could give the honorable nickname Stephanus to. Uh, when I look at this picture and I, I read about people like this, at least for me, I, I think about people that I know, maybe right here at Beaumont Baptist Church or at other churches that I've been a part of. Uh, I know for myself, I, th- I think of one man in particular that I was in church with years ago, and he was like this. It was just like, this guy, I could just love this guy. He's never really up front doing a whole lot, but he's just committed, all in, the real deal, and he's been doing this a long, long time. What a godly man, and I had just immense respect for him, watching his faithful service to the Lord in that regard. Uh, Stephanus and his household, I think, are a lot like a trusty old pair of leather boots. Right? There's just There's nothing flashy about them. They're just always there getting it done, and they're super durable and reliable. And with that, look at what verse 16 says. It says, maybe a bit surprisingly, be subject to such as these and to every fellow worker and laborer. Uh, That phrase there, be subject, that particular uh, word, be subject, And the word devoted back in the previous verse, they actually come from the same root word. The the word that I was telling you means to arrange, appoint, or order. So here's the idea. Here's what's going on. Paul's saying, listen, guys, these people have arranged themselves and their lives to serve you. To serve the saints. And what you ought to do is you ought to arrange your life under them. Follow such people. Submit to them. Don't make things hard on them. 
I think it's interesting that in a church where so many people arrogantly, you may remember from maybe the first four chapters of the book or so, so many people arrogantly put an emphasis on wisdom and knowledge. And for these people, with that being their struggle, where they're, they're arrogantly focused on wisdom and knowledge, God puts before them the picture of a servant. He just puts before them this, this beautiful picture of an old, trusty pair of work boots. Servanthood, not arrogant intellectualism, is praise. And there's certainly a place for, for knowledge, humble knowledge. But I think what it highlights here is that whatever your gift, it's only as good as its sacrificial employment in the service of God's people for God's glory. God wants your church to be a place where people arrange their lives to serve. And that starts with you. And as I said, it's much bigger than what happens on a Sunday in this, in this place or in relation to some kind of program. This is life. A fourth positive portrait is of people refreshing others. Look at verses 17 to 18. Paul says, I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus because they have made up for your absence, for they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such men. Again, he, he snaps a picture and he's putting it on display. Like, guys, this is where it's at. Give recognition. This is good. Paul snaps a picture here of a refresher or, or refreshers. These three men came to Paul, and what does the text say that they did? It says that they refreshed his spirit. And by so doing, we're not really given all the details. Maybe we could glean some of them by looking at other passages of Scripture in the book of Acts. But whatever they did... Uh, by refreshing Paul, they also refresh the spirits of the Corinthians. They're like a cool glass of water on a hot day. If you look around any church, you will find people, very good people, who are running on fumes. <laughs> you will find people like that. Because life can be draining, and ministry can be draining, and people can be draining. How can you be this type of person? How can you be a refresher for the glory of God? The ways are probably endless, but let me just give you a few simple ways that I think we can kind of pull right out of these verses. Uh, one way that you can do that is look for gaps and holes to fill. Uh, this is really a ministry of your, your deeds. Look for gaps and holes to fill. Verse 17, Paul tells the Corinthians that these three men made up for your absence. Paul's in one place, Corinthians are in another. They're, they're separated by a sea, and, and there's a gap there. And these men, Paul writes, they made up for something. They made up for your absence. There was a gap, hole, or deficiency that they stepped into and they filled. And again, we have so few details. But if you'll use your eyes and ears to spot gaps and holes, and then you'll meet those needs that you see, do you know what you'll be? You'll be a refresher. What may feel like a small gap or hole to you, you see, oh, yeah, yeah, I mean, that's kind of a small gap or hole. It'd be maybe nice if that was filled. It's not that big of a deal. What may feel like a small gap or hole to you may actually feel like Mount Everest to someone else. Maybe someone who's serving in some particular ministry or has something going on in their life. 
And it might literally be the straw breaking the camel's back. If you can look for gaps and holes to fill them and and actually fill them in a spirit-filled way, you will be a refresher. Uh, Another way that you can be a refresher, and this one's really simple, and this is something that almost anybody can do. It's this, be there. Just talking about the ministry of presence. Don't underestimate the power of your physical presence. When people are drained or suffering, you know, they might not remember anything you say. You might not know what to say. But they'll remember the fact that you were there. They won't, 10 years down the road or even two hours down the road, they might not remember anything that you said, but they'll be so glad that they were, you were there with them. And for Paul, these three men showed up. They were there. If you want to be a a refresher, one of the things that you can do is just show up and be there with people and for people, especially when they're suffering. And one third way is to use your words for life. The ministry of your words, you remember from Proverbs chapter 18, verse 21, what does it say? It tells us that death and life are in the power of the tongue. Your tongue is extremely powerful. Uh, These men are in Paul's presence, and no doubt as they're together, they're talking. And whatever these men said to Paul, it refreshed him. The fact of the matter is, is that one positive, uplifting, and encouraging sentence, or maybe phrase or word from you, might be all that it takes to refresh one of your fellow Christians. And you can use your words, and you can employ them for life. I had a time in early on in my uh, own pastoral ministry where I, I was just feeling a bit beat up and worn down and tired and confused and various things. And there was an older gentleman at uh, the church that I was at at the time. I, he, he was probably in his 80s. Um, this wasn't the guy that was there on church work days, you know, with super strong arms, strong legs, and a back getting physical work done. He's kind of past that phase of his life. And he phoned me up and he just asked if we could do coffee together. And I remember we, we met, we meet at a Starbucks and uh, he just basically said, hey, I noticed this, this, and this that you got going on right now. And I just want to let you know that I love you and opened up the scriptures t- together and encouraged me and just smile on his face. And I just thought, oh, thank you. You know, like I, that, that, that was a rich, rich blessing to me. Thank you. And sometimes it's very small actions like that that allow you to put fuel in somebody else's tank and just come alongside of them and encourage them. God wants your church to be a place where people refresh other people, and that starts with you. How can you do that? How can you be a refresher? Um, I think that everyone wants to be refreshed. I mean, don't you? Don't you want people to just somehow, some way, refresh you? Everyone wants to be refreshed. But sometimes it's, it's only a handful of people who are actually providing that kind of ministry. And so maybe some questions. Who do you know that needs to be refreshed? And maybe you go, I, I don't know. And that's why I'm asking this question. Well, you should think about it, right? Who, who do you know that could use some refreshment right now? And a follow-up question to that, what can you do about it? Big or maybe small? Maybe it's a word that you could say, just something you could say to them, or a deed, or just being there, or some other thing. Uh, A fifth portrait, portrait number five, is people exercising warm, authentic unity. Look at verses 19 and 20. The churches of Asia send you greetings. 
Aquila and Prisca, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Uh, The key word, and hopefully you caught it as I read those verses, the key word running through those verses is the word greet or greetings. The church of Corinth was such a divided mess. We've seen their divisions around their leaders. Uh, We saw in this book their divisions around the Lord's table and how a very good chance even, even in the rooms in the house they were separated. We've seen their division in relation to their socioeconomic statuses and so on. This is a church that has really struggled with division. Verses 19 to 20 are a picture of people exercising warm, authentic unity. It's warm unity. And it's seen in in their greeting of one another. It's this this picture of what things should be like and what they're like in some places. Uh, We see unity and warm greetings coming from the churches of Asia, plural. Paul's saying there's all these other churches and they're greeting you because they love you in the Lord. They recognize you you as, as fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. The church that meets in Aquila and Priscilla's house sends hearty greetings, again, in the Lord, in their union with Christ. The Corinthians are told to greet one another with a holy kiss, which would have been a warm greeting in in their cultural context. You're talking about something, uh, the way they're greeting each other, you're talking about something that's physical and warm and affectionate. Maybe a little weird to us, but that's what it was. Some parents have been known to have their children hug after a conflict and time of correction. And I remember, I've got a couple sisters, and I remember, I don't know, I was being a terrible brother, I'm sure, doing something I shouldn't have been doing. And I was corrected and disciplined by one of my parents. And after that was done, it was the whole, well, you you need to go give your sister a hug, you know, tell her you love her, that you're sorry, and, you know, the works. You've probably done it as a parent. Well, I went, and I gave my sister a hug and told her I was sorry. Of course I did it. I didn't want to be in more trouble. But you know how these things often go. At least on my part, it was done with zero, and I mean zero, affection for my sister. I felt no warmth towards her, and I'm sure that was obvious in every way. And you just get this idea, what's a hug supposed to be like? Well, when people love each other and they hug, like, it's like oh, they're glad to be in each other's presence. They care about one another. Paul is calling the Corinthians to warm, authentic unity that's seen even in the way that they greet and welcome each other, and that should be present in all of God's people, even amongst churches. And it's the type of thing that can't be manufactured or or put on, these hearty greetings, these affectionate greetings. That's the picture. And God wants our church and our relationship, even with other churches, uh, God wants our church here to be a place where people exercise warm, authentic unity, and that starts with you. God wants you to exercise warm, authentic unity. And at times that means, you know what you need to do? You need to overlook an offense. You need to overlook what that that stupid thing that somebody said to you. Um, Or maybe something that they they did. At other times that means I'm going to go seek reconciliation because the ball is always in my court. Whether I'm the one that's been sinned against or I'm the one that's done the sinning, the ball is always in my court to go seek and to make things right. It means that as a church, we're family through thick and thin. 
It means positively showing warmth and love. Uh, maybe just to, to get practical here, you could think of it this way. If there's someone here that you couldn't give a warm, authentic hug to, that's a big problem. Like, and I don't just mean like, yeah, I come do the handshake thing because it's what we do in our culture. If there's someone here that you couldn't actually give a hug to, a real one, that's a problem. And it needs to be resolved because the gospel brings us together. What makes this unity possible is a phrase that shows up here. Uh, they send you hearty greetings in the Lord. It's the gospel that brings us together. It's our relationship with Jesus that makes this possible. By the way, just a little quick side note here. I don't think it's any accident that in this section on warm, authentic unity, Paul mentioned, just so happens to mention this church that met in Aquila and Priscilla's home. And that's how most churches were in that day. But he mentions this couple and the church met in their home. Their doors were open to their church family and not just some of them, but all of them. You may have a very large, nice home or a relatively small and modest one. And I just want to remind you that your home, uh, and encourage you that your home is a very special, powerful tool in building the kind of warm, authentic unity pictured here. When Aquila and Priscilla open up the doors of their home for the church to gather in every Sunday, by the grace of God, hopefully they're warm unity type of people. Don't under- underestimate the power of your home, even if it's small, dated, and beat up. Uh, for me personally, I grew up in a broken home. And one of the greatest things that my siblings and I enjoyed, and I think that was hugely formative for us spiritually, and that we benefited from was spending time in homes of people from our church in very ordinary ways. There were times when my home didn't really even feel like a home. And I just loved being in the homes of my friends from church and being around their family and their home. It's like, I just, it was great. Just in ordinary ways. We were lovingly welcomed and received and bonds were formed. And when those type of things happen, doors of influence open too. If you open the literal doors of your space, other ministry doors will likely open with them. Your home is a place of, uh, intended to be a place of warmth and affection where most of us are are guards just down a little bit more. Open doors help cultivate warm, authentic unity and a whole host of ministry opportunities. And so I just want to encourage you practically to use your home for the Lord's service. Um, Big question, though, with all these things, does a happy, healthy church really start with you? Really? And we'd have to say theologically, well, yes and no. Actually, it starts with Jesus doing something in and through you. And that's where Paul is going to end this letter. He's going to end it with Jesus. Jesus is in every line of verses 22 to 24. And so we come to a sixth positive portrait, and it is of people consumed with Jesus or the antithesis of that. Look at verses 21 to 24 as we wrap up. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Uh, These verses paint the picture of people who have Jesus at the center of their lives. Or, as I said, maybe it's the opposite of that. But he should be the center and circumference of our lives. He should be everything. What do people consumed with Jesus look like? People consumed with Jesus love Jesus. Look back at verses 21 to 22 where you see the opposite of that. Paul says, I write this in my own hand. And then he says, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. 
If the greatest command is to love Jesus, the Lord our God, with all of our heart, then the greatest sin would be the opposite of that. Apparently, there were people within the Corinthian church who had no love for Jesus. Apparently, there were people who had probably even been there for years. And they're with this body. And yet, they might not even have put their faith and trust in Christ. They don't love him. They rejected Jesus and his loving sacrifice for for them. And verse 21 says that people who reject the love of Jesus, let them be a curse or devoted to God's judgment. We see a picture of people here. These positive pictures all flow from people who have been transformed by Jesus. And the Bible tells us that we love him because he first loved us. Why do people love Jesus? Why do people live the way that Paul's urging here? Where does that even start? Well, the Bible says that we love him because he first loved us. And he demonstrated his love towards us by dying on the cross for our sins to satisfy God's wrath for our sin and pay for it and deal deal with it. And Jesus just said, I've done something amazing for you. What do you need to do? Repent and believe the gospel, the good news. Turn from your sin and trust in my work and my work alone. I love you. And I love you so much, I want you to have eternal life and be made new and transformed from the inside out. The Bible says that we love Jesus because he first loved us. Jesus has done something great for you, and what he has done can totally transform your life. But God tells you what you have to do is you have to respond to that love by repenting and believing, and then what flows is a life of love for him. People consumed with Jesus love him, And they also wait for Jesus. Verse 22 ends, our Lord come. If we love Jesus, what's going to happen is we're going to long for his return. And we're going to keep our eyes fixed on him, which is going to give us the grace and endurance to live in ways just like we described. Verse 23, people consumed with Jesus draw grace from Jesus. Look at verse 23. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. We go to Jesus for grace and divine enablement. I can't do this. But by, with Jesus' help, I can. And finally, people consumed with Jesus love others through Jesus. Look at verse 24. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Paul said a lot of hard things in this letter, hasn't he? This church has a lot of problems. And he ends by telling these people that he loves every single one of them in Christ Jesus. Our union with Jesus and our relationship with him helps us love our brothers and sisters in Christ, even at times where they're not very lovable. That's the power of Christ and his love. God wants your church to be a place where people are consumed with Jesus Christ, and that starts with you. Are you walking with him and loving him based on his love for you and waiting for his return and drawing grace from him, not yourself, and loving others through him? Maybe your church isn't all that you wish it was. It's probably not. But that doesn't mean that it can't change and grow and develop. Because a happy, healthy church starts with you and Christ working in and through you. May Beaumont Baptist Church be a happy, healthy church by the grace of God. Would you bow with me at this time?